origins of snake oil, the truth about the most famous retracted COVID-19 study. Written by E. Rosalie The controversial hydroxychloroquine study gave hope to the world. That was about three seconds before scientists found the trial suffered flaws so grievous as to render the results meaningless. Whether the drug helped people heal faster or protected them from infection, this study couldn't have shown. Looking over the paper, one finds problems that reach such extremes it's hard to understand how the paper got published. How could this research have seen peer review and come out like this? Therein lies the story. Ultimately, the study showed us one thing to a dramatic effect, studies may be so troubled as to defy belief in their publication and still mislead the public as if the results had been pristine. The Impossible Study The green light for the 14-day study came on March 6, 2020, from Ethics Oversight. They first presented their study that had yet to be peer-reviewed on March 16 via YouTube. Also on March 16, the research team submitted their study to the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. The journal accepted the article by March 17 and published on March 20. That leaves a one to two day period for the peer review process, which may take months ordinarily. The strangest aspect may be that once they had published the study via preprint servers, making it accessible to the world, a more thorough review did not take place. Many of the 40,000-plus COVID-19 preprint studies have published quickly, sought review, and published formally a month or two later with the needed corrections. Peer review involves giving the research to someone with expert-level knowledge. If you're lucky, it will be someone who disagrees with you, they will see every weakness in your argument. The process doesn't say much if you ask someone outside the field. It would be like asking a classical pianist if your car is making weird noises. If peer review happened as the journal claims, the job was so poor as to be undetectable. That isn't said metaphorically. The paper submitted for review shows no differences from the original. Several scientists who started reviewing the document before it published compared the published version to an earlier one. They compared a Google Drive draft that had circulated among scientists before March 16 and the reviewed version. They had this to say. These versions of the study report were the same as the one we reviewed, indicating no or limited external peer review for the final published version. The International Society of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy stated in April 2020, the ISAC shares the concerns regarding the above article published recently in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. The ISAC board believes the article does not meet the society's expected standard, especially relating to the lack of better explanations of the inclusion criteria and the triage of patients to ensure patient safety. The ISAC concluded, It is important to help the scientific community by publishing new data fast, this cannot be at the cost of reducing scientific scrutiny and best practice. The concrete evidence shows that nothing changed. Was the paper given to someone uniquely unskilled in peer review? The evidence suggests not. Conflict of interest galore. The editor-in-chief of the publishing journal is also an author of the study. The issue featuring the research paper also included an editorial penned by the study authors, including one editor-in-chief. The letter gives a sparkling review, 
making statements not reasonably made from the results of a single study, even if the drug had helped people. It's possible to use both in prophylaxis in people exposed to the novel coronavirus and as a curative treatment will probably be promptly evaluated by our Chinese colleagues. If clinical data confirm the biological results, the novel coronavirus-associated disease will have become one of the simplest and cheapest to treat and prevent among infectious respiratory diseases. Quote from the article Chloroquine for the 2019 novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 by Colson, Rolain, and Reld. Had the results confirmed as the quote states, it would not have shown the drug would become one of the simplest and easiest to treat and prevent among infectious respiratory diseases. The study as it was, and not as the authors presented it, never had the potential to deliver firm answers. Partly, the controversy with this study comes from the discussion of two ideas at once. 1. The efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and 2. The quality of this study. The two are distinct issues. Missing patients, method in the madness. The final draft shows 20 patients receiving treatment, six less than at the beginning. Looking at the data analysis, one would assume that the missing six patients dropped from the trial. When people drop from a trial, we censor the data, which stops dropouts from influencing the results. That is not what happened. Three ended up in the ICU, one died, one could not tolerate the side effects from treatment, and the last person left the hospital. The authors analyzed the study as if these critical or dead patients had simply stopped taking the drug. Effectively all patients that conflicted with the author's conclusion ended up excluded from the data. Whether that was the intention is another issue entirely, but it was the result. The percentage of people who died or were hospitalized is almost exactly what one expects to see without treatment, with 15-20% to 20 severe cases and a 1% death rate overall. The study bases much of its claims on results taken from the sixth day of treatment, but that was not a planned checkpoint for the study. They switched endpoints, citing the promising nature of the results. That's a problem. The PLO-SS Clinical Trials Editorial Board extensively discussed endpoint switching warning. A fundamental principle in the design of randomized trials involves setting out in advance the endpoints that will be assessed in the trial, as failure to pre-specify endpoints can introduce bias into a trial and create opportunities for manipulation. The Clinical Trial Registry says they plan to check patients on Day 1, Day 4, Day 7, and Day 14. 6 does not appear among the planned days. It begs what happened on day 7. The paper submitted on March 16th, so it's reasonable to expect they include that in the preprint. The results appeared as if a control group took part, but one author fairly openly doesn't believe in controlled trials. Some patients assigned themselves rather than random sorting, and they received treatment at different locations. Any differences might explain why one group fared better. The paper claims that all patients were older than 12 years, but the report appears to have several under that age. Some patients go negative before positive again. It's unclear how this test shows anything about the drug's ability to help either. The authors neglected to fully describe these aspects and show no other factors could explain the fantastic results. Whether this drug helps matters a great deal, 
and the consequences reach far beyond the what have we got to lose? Mentality. The answer is life. That's what we have to lose. COVID-19 patients are already at risk for acute cardiac injury, myocarditis, and cardiac arrhythmias, all heart-related afflictions. In response, Dutch scientists detailed a litany of valid and serious concerns. Even if a larger randomized controlled trial showed that the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin would be effective in patients with COVID-19, safety would still be an issue. The criticism isn't strictly American. The toxic potential of the drug increases the risk of death. As with all things, the dose makes the poison, but for COVID-19 there is more than the dose to consider. The cardiac risks may not have mattered much in malaria patients, but it matters for COVID-19 patients whose hearts may be directly infected. According to a cardiology report from JAMA, in patients with COVID-19, cardiovascular involvement occurs frequently. The question isn't, what have we got to lose? It's actually, how certain are we that a drug with a known ability to harm the heart will help patients infected with a virus that also increases their risk for heart problems? The answer is you better be damn sure. The promised cure. It took less than a day for the two good-to-be-true claims to catch the eye of elected officials and a world desperate for a cure. The public heard that a cure was soon to come, leaving scientists trapped in the difficult position of delivering the bad news. Officials and the public may not have understood the problems in the study. This highlights the responsibility scientists have to honestly represent their work, and for politicians to defer analyzing scientific results to qualified parties. To date, the authors have dismissed studies to the contrary as crappy while not applying those same design standards to their study. At least one author has a history of outright fabricating data and insiders have claimed that fear of that author has led to silence. The dogmatic claims from the authors, taken up by political figures, quickly polarized public opinion on a situation that even those who study the field would need time to fully understand. Quickly, many dismissed scientists who raised valid concerns as politically motivated, but the evidence for that has yet to be supplied. On the contrary, a welling sea of evidence shows the fears were justified. One cannot dismiss that which conflicts with their chosen perspective by taking any plausible rationale and passing it off as fact. That appears to be the root of this story. As Upton Sinclair wisely noted, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Clinging to the belief that a cure was within our grasp has much more appeal than that the study authors had misled us from the bottom all the way to the top. Whatever the truth of the study's results, it no longer mattered once media outlets ran with it. The ill-fated effort to help people understand centered on evidence. Scientists fail to see that opinions that come to pass without evidence likely won't be dissuaded by more of it. Reliable, unreliable, it's all the same. Monolithic public pressure meant scientists had to repeat the studies ad nauseum. A lack of coordination and centralized response meant the effort, was, marked by disorder and disorganization, with huge financial resources wasted. Whether the drug had been helpful, a single study could not and should not be used to draw that broad conclusion. There are too many potential variables, even with thorough research. 
For the maybe wonder drug hydroxychloroquine, follow-up studies boomed out of control. STAT reported in July 2020 that one in every six drug trials was chloroquine-related. That means fewer resources went to other potential therapies. A loss felt more strongly now that hydroxychloroquine appears to increase mortality and mixed results on benefits. Evidence had little to do with what the media and political frenzy. We fulfilled precisely that which we knew would happen and could have avoided. Kai Kupferschmidt, a noted science journalist and molecular biologist, wrote in a book from 2018, New Plagues Will Come. Whether they will lead to catastrophe, will depend mostly on what wins out in the end, empathy and innovation or ignorance and selfishness. With that, few would disagree. But I would add that humility seems to underpin success or failure. Do you have the strength to admit your stance, even if the best evidence informed it, was wrong and the approach needs to change? That trait is the underappreciated framework for greatness. We cannot fix what we won't admit is broken. The Prophetic Warning In 2014, the Director General of the WHO gave a keynote speech that was nothing short of prophetic. Yet another outbreak had just shaken the heads of state who now cared to hear the messages they had long ignored, messages that might have saved their countries from the devastating loss they now faced. I have never seen an infectious disease contribute so strongly to potential state failure. But I will use the outbreak to show some key arguments that WHO has been making for decades. First, the outbreak spotlights the dangers of the world's growing social and economic inequalities. The rich get the best care. The poor are left to die. Second, rumors and panic are spreading faster than the virus. And this costs money. Third, when a deadly and dreaded virus hits the destitute and spirals out of control, the whole world is put at risk. Fourth, decades of neglect of fundamental health systems and services mean that a shock, like an extreme weather event in a changing climate, armed conflict, or a disease run wild, can bring a fragile country to its knees. You cannot build these systems up during a crisis. Instead, they collapse. Finally, the world is ill-prepared to respond to any severe, sustained, and threatening public health emergency. The Director General also mentioned the World Bank's shocking estimation that 90% of economic losses in a pandemic come from irrational and uncoordinated efforts. The U.S. response to the crisis has been nothing if not irrational and uncoordinated, though we could have avoided it. Our results tell the story of the choices we made as well as the predictable reasons we made them. Thank you for listening. For more articles from E. Rosalie and other writers from Novel Science, please subscribe through the link at the bottom of the article or in the show notes. Please feel free to write with questions, comments, or corrections to editor at novel-science.com.